0: to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, perhaps one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm very excited to have writer-director Megan Griffiths with me. Hi. Hi. Um. Oh. So uh, please let me give you a rundown on Megan's life. Hmm. Hmm. Cue the music, <laughs> right? You can just, uh, like the heavenly music? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I got it. Megan is a Seattle-based writer-director working in film and television. In 2003, she made her feature debut with First Aid for Choking, about a young woman forced to confront some unresolved familial issues. From there, she made some shorts and worked as a first assistant director, cinematographer, and editor, and everything else. And in 2011, she returned with her software. Feature The Off Hours, which premiered at Sundance and was distributed by Film Movement. Megan's film Eden, based on a true story of a young woman captured into the world of human trafficking, was a breakout at South by Southwest 2012, winning the Emergent Narrative Director Award, the Audience Award for Narrative Feature, as well as a special jury prize for lead actress Jamie Chung. Damn. That must have been a great time. That was really fun. That, that was a that good night. Time. Yeah. I'm on top of the world. <laughs> um, she then went on to direct Lucky Them, starring Tony Collette, Thomas Hayden Church, and Johnny Depp, which premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival and was distributed by IFC Films, followed by another movie called The Night Stalker, starring Lou Diamond Phillips as serial killer Richard Ramirez. She directed two episodes of the Duplass Brothers HBO anthology series Room 104. A lot of our guests have been on that show. It's They've great. been choosing wisely from the independent film Marketplace. I believe they have. <laughs> um, and Megan's uh, episode of the epic's comedy Graves, starring Nick Nolte, also I think, what, last year? This yeah, year? it was last year, yeah. Um, her newest feature is called Sadie, starring Melanie Linsky and John Gallagher Jr. In a story about a girl navigating grief and confusion while her father chooses to serve overseas and her mother attempts to move on with her life. Megan was the recipient of the 2012 Stranger Genius Award for Film, was named the 2013 City Arts Film Artist of the Year, and received the 2015 Seattle Mayor's Award for Film. The mayor! I know. To, I'm going to meet the mayor, right?
1: I, yeah, I felt like I should get to be the mayor after getting that award. I, I think should, so, like too. Honor, that's, at least for like a that's day. That's the
0: prize, right? Yeah. Mayor for a day. I feel like that's appropriate. hmm Ban everything. I wouldn't do any major damage. I would. She's also <laughs> Megan is also the vice president of the board of the Northwest Film Forum and is an act advocate for sustainable production, which we need more of. Um, So Megan, that was an amazing rundown, by the way. And most people don't count
1: First Aid for Choking amongst my repertoire or whatever. So thank you for
0: including it. We need to make sure that we tell people where Megan began, right? (laughs) Exactly. A lot of our listeners, you know, they're they're people who want to be filmmakers, especially a lot of our female listeners are like, oh, I think that I could do this after Mm -hmm. hearing these women. So... Telling people, like, what's the first movie? What's the first short they did? And sometimes there's an eight-year lag between sometimes two features. Yeah, and, and it's fine because you learn so much by doing. Exactly. And so, yeah, we're trying to demystify that process. I love that. Um, and so we, what we'll be demystifying today is a movie that a lot of people find complex, but I don't actually find that complex. <laughs> um, it is Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys. And could you tell us a little bit about why you chose that film today to talk about?
1: Well... So I watched 12 Monkeys in the theater the probably whenever it came to Idaho, which is where I was at the time. Mm-hmm. It was right before I went to film school. And I found it really inspiring because it was, uh, you know, it was sort of intellectual and, and bizarre and visually exciting. And I thought there was some really amazing performances in it. And it just kind of was it, it kind of got me really juiced up to go learn about how to make movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it just, I was looking down the lists of things that were that could qualify for this podcast. And that one jumped out at me because I just remembered it had an uh, effect on me when I saw it. And I hadn't really watched it and revisited it at all since. And so I, I watched it again last week for the first time in maybe like almost 20 years. Yeah.
0: And I hope you still liked it.
1: I did. I did. I wondered about whether it would, what it, what movie it would be if like Bruce Willis wasn't the most marketable person at that time. Mm-hmm. Like if it had been a different actor in that role, I thought it could, it, it. I was thinking about that a lot while I was watching it. But Brad Pitt's really excellent in it.
0: Yes. And we'll get into both of those actors and their performance in this film. Um, But for those of you who haven't seen 12 Monkeys, today's episode will obviously give you some spoilers. That shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto, is always, is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch 12 Monkeys now, this is your opportunity. It's on Amazon Prime right now. It is. That's how I watched it. Mm -hmm. Me too. Uh, Okay, so let's get back to 12 Monkeys. Written by Janet and David Peoples and directed by Terry Gilliam for release in 1995, 12 Monkeys tells the story of a time-traveling or a possibly mentally ill man named James Cole. We start in 2035, where Cole is a prisoner in an underground bunker of old Philadelphia. Animals have become dominant again, and Cole is a forest volunteer who has to go to the surface of Earth and try to collect insect specimens. He's then trained to Time travel and try to stop the people responsible for the infection that turned the world upside down. And he is sent back to 1999, only he was supposed to be sent back to 1996 and there was a mistake. Um, There, in 1990, he is institutionalized and meets Jeffrey Goines, a jittery, wealthy radical, also institutionalized, who vaguely talks about revolutionary plans. Cole disappears from his cell, and we see him back in 2035 being debriefed by these scientists. He identifies goins from a picture he's shown and thinks he's involved in a group called the 12 Monkeys, which is supposedly responsible for the outbreak that happens in 1996. So then Cole gets sent accidentally to World War I. He gets shot, (laughs) and then he's correctly sent to 1996 almost immediately, where he then kidnaps his former doctor from 1990, Catherine Raley. Raleigh really tries to convince Cole he's not a time traveler and that he needs help. He shows her the 12 monkey symbols around the city, informs her about goins, and takes her to their hideout. She slowly starts to come around to his being a time traveler while he comes around to being insane. Rayleigh um, <laughs> really devises a plan for them to escape from whoever is following Cole. She leaves a message on a telephone number Cole once gave her in 1990 just in case. And Cole is able to recite from memory everything Rayleigh said on the message because he heard it played in 2035. Ooh, ooh, the plot thickens. (laughs) They arrive at the airport the same time as another man, Dr. Peters, who had tried to talk to Rayleigh once about his plans earlier in the story. You know, kind of a peripheral character that you Mm -hmm. kind of saw, but you didn't think anything of. Then plays out a recurring vision Cole has had his entire life. A memory from his childhood of being at that airport in 1996 as a child, watching his future self get murdered. Nothing is okay, everything is circular, and you can never escape your fate.
1: Yay! (laughs) It's pretty exciting stuff. (laughs) Terry Gilliam! Yeah,
0: it sounds more complicated, I think, than
1: it is to watch.
0: It is not as complicated. Yeah, and I, I,
1: you know, when I watched it going to school, I, I, you know, I I probably was the most film snobby I ever was in that era, but I was... uh, I, I didn't feel like baffled by it. Like mm-hmm. I, I came out just thinking, wow, it really kind of it made my brain function and work during it, which I loved. And then, uh, you know, I had this, you know, I had all these great conversations after it. And I love movies that that spark that kind of
0: thing. So I want to begin this whole discussion with this Terry Gilliam quote which he said in an old Charlie Rose interview for the release of 12 Monkeys. He said, quote, "I didn't want big stars, period. I wanted to keep them with less expense. I wanted to keep them less expensive because I wanted to maintain control. It's a demanding script. The studio going is going to get nervous so the cheaper I could make it, the less demanding they would be. They wanted a name to sell the film. They threw out a whole lot of names for me and they were all totally inappropriate." So, uh, we'll get into his reasoning for casting the actors that he did in this movie, but I would love to open it up, you know, this conversation of the idea of control Mm -hmm. and the weird ways that filmmakers try to maintain control of their pictures.
1: Yeah. First of all, I think that's really interesting because it doesn't seem like he ultimately went with any kind of unknown actors. Yeah. I mean, I mean Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt were big stars at the time that this movie came out. It yeah. wasn't like early Brad Pitt or anything. Um, and Madeline Stowe too was like a huge star at the oh, time. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm interested at what point of the process that was his thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Cause at the end, yeah, he's got to have come around to the idea of casting stars. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it's interesting to the, – the whole concept of, of directorial control and creative control. I come from an independent background, and I have been sort of fortunate enough in my career to have final cut, to have a lot of sort of the final say on mm-hmm. all questions when it comes to the films I've been making – And, you know, it doesn't mean I don't don't seek feedback, but, you know, at the end of the day, the buck stops here and there's not a committee making a choice. And I do appreciate that about working at a lower budget level. I always call it the low budget, low interference model. Um, (laughs) But uh, there's but then I've done some work in television and I've kind of gotten a taste of uh, a different you know where you don't even have final cut you get a couple of days in the editing room to Mm -hmm. make your version and then you watch what they do to it on television whenever it airs like you don't even that must be a surreal experience it's weird and especially after making six features where i was in the room the entire process like i I, i'm all you know i'm there from the first day to the last day um Mm -hmm. and and having that much you know control and input and say and collaboration is really uh wonderful and and it guides the end result so much mm-hmm. that it's it's is kind of like sometimes it can be a little cringy to see what happens to the stuff you've directed. Because directing on set is part of it, but directing the editing room is huge. It, yeah. You can really, really shape performances. I have I think I've been able to, you know, work with really incredible actors, but there's always a way to cut a bad performance out of what they do because you're giving them all this opportunity on set to try things. Like mm-hmm. they trust you with with these experiments that they're doing, and then th- that you're not going to put the ones in that don't work. And if you lose that control, then it, it sort of like limits what you can allow on set, I think, or at least what they'll let themselves do.
0: Yeah. I mean, and there's also a way to make really bad performances turn into great performance performances through the editing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's for sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not naming names on that one. But, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, sometimes people just like, you know, they may not uh, have the right connection with the material or the editing. Like, maybe there might be something different in the room. You know, there's a story about, you know, all uh, Lenny, uh, that movie Lenny that um, uh, uh, Bob Fosse directed Mm -hmm. and they had to develop new editing to try to fix Dustin Hoffman's Interesting. Performance, and then he ended up winning an award. <laughs> so.
1: And then it's like the director's like, I want to get that. I want to go up and accept that award. So. Exactly right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, um, I'm curious, you know, we'll go into the star thing because you brought up the fact that, you know, Brad Pitt and Stowe Stone, Bruce Willis, and also we can't forget Christopher Plummer in this movie. Like, right. Yeah, that's right. Like, he's got a small role, but you're like, that's fucking Christopher Plummer. He br- <laughs> he brings
1: a gravitas to the proceedings. To anything,
0: right? Yeah. Um, so I I do think it is kind of silly that Gilliam says he didn't want to work with stars because he does have all of these I stars here. I could see him here.
1: saying, like, that at the beginning of the process and then being overruled or ch- his mind having been changed or something. But to say it at the end when he... these are the actors in your movie is kind of crazy. I think he was
0: justifying it. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is, he did say pitt had signed on to the film right like before some of the stuff for legends of the fall or um, oh interesting so uh, it was kind of
1: off of thelma louise but not exactly. not in the yeah
0: high, the heyday yeah but i think apparently like he could kind of see where the trajectory of his career was going and it was going to be kind of like the hot sexy guy who's quiet you know yeah, uh, especially after Legends of the Fall. This felt like one one of, I think he's one of those, you know, sort
1: of actors who could have gone the very, you know, the pretty boy route. But he made really smart choices in his career to try these weird roles in like this and like California. And, you know, he, he did, he made choices that I'm sure his agents hated at the time. To oh, yeah. Just to kind of make sure people realize that he was interested in, you know, character acting too and not just being the sexy leading men.
0: Yeah. California, I think, is actually the performance that got Gilliam to even look at him as a possibility because mm-hmm. he didn't want like a, a handsome leading man. He's for great this in role. that, too. Um, I haven't seen that for a while. I mean, so, of course, you know, this was a bit of a different role for him. Um, and I think think you know we we all think of his erratic character right now in in fight club like that's his his big iconic role but of course 12 monkeys was where he was practicing for tyler durden you can can see it so clearly and so obviously now that maybe it's time for me to watch fight club again now just
1: right because now it's fresh and then you're and then you
0: get to judge it based upon performances you know like looking at like the nitpicky as opposed Mm -hmm. to maybe necessarily the whole thing Um, which is, you know, sometimes how I have to watch a movie to get through them. Mm -hmm. Um, So Brad Pitt cut his own hair, like... He was like, no, no, I'm going to give myself a haircut. So he cut his own hair. He quit smoking and worked with one of Gilliam's coaches and a man named Stephen Bridgewater um, who helped him break into the speedy cadence with erratic movements. He even put contacts in his eyes so they wouldn't be baby blue and, you know, beautiful. And he wanted to (laughs) ugly himself up somehow. Of course, all we know, he failed miserably. He's still a handsome guy in this movie. Yeah, sorry, Um, Brad. But it is admirable the way that he kind of, tried to embody this role mm-hmm. and tried to make himself, you know, fit this character with all his might, you know, working mm-hmm. with a coach very, very closely and, you know, trying to to become this new person. Yeah. Have you ever worked with um, coaches or people who've tried to, to really kind of break out of their character? Or do you tend to use like their natural abilities? So far in I'm just kind of flipping back through
1: performances, but I think if I've I haven't cast so wildly away from like I I, I mean, like Tony Collette has an American accent and lucky them and obviously she's Australian. Mm-hmm. So um that's but she doesn't need any coach at this point. She's been doing that same she's been doing an American accent for a long mm-hmm. time. <clears throat> so she didn't really need me uh or any help from the production on that. Um Yeah, I think it's been – I mean, there's like small things like training for – you know, like I had a character in The Night Stalker who boxed, so we were doing sort of boxing training and stuff like that. But it was – for the most part, I think I've I've looked for actors who felt like they were in the right ballpark for the character – and and just try to cast as well as possible.
0: Well, it's a risk. I mean, because mm-hmm. if you take a risk on someone and they actually can't embody that role, mm-hmm. then, oh, like, yeah. what are you going to do? I
1: mean, I hadn't seen Jamie Chung do anything like Eden um, when I cast her in the lead for that. She came and auditioned for us, though, which did kind of take a little element of the risk out because she clearly was so good and smart. Mm-hmm. and um but uh, but yeah, like her originally her agents were like, no, she's offer only. And I was like, well, I can't look at her work yet and kind of know that it's going to work. And I need to know because it's the lead and it's really important. And and then she kind of caught wind of it. and It's like, I'll fly myself up and audition like she came to Seattle and read for us and stuff. But she was uh she was so brilliant in it. But like she it wasn't something that uh, I knew watching her work at that point that she was mm-hmm. going to be able to step up and do.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is tempting if you get, you know, an actor with a name to maybe forgo any kind of audition process. Yeah, because you do have
1: to do that so much of the time. You have to just kind of take the leap of faith when they're, they're, quote unquote, offer only or meeting only or they won't audition at a certain point after their career, which is something their agents decide, not necessarily something they decide. Yeah, because sometimes they
0: might be interested in doing that just so they can, like— vibe with the director.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what Jamie said when I told her her agents had said that she was off only. She was like, what? I'll read for whatever. But um, she was, you know, she had, she had she made the extra effort on that. But yeah, a lot of times you don't get, they don't get wind of it at all. So you're just talking to the gatekeepers and they're telling you like, what they've decided, the actors, you know, what level they're at. That's and
0: incredibly frustrating. Terry Gilliam said that he didn't really deal with Brad Pitt's Asians because Brad Pitt flew himself to London hmm. and just showed up and was just like, I want to be in this movie. <laughs> good see,
1: Another <laughs> another good marks for him in terms of, like, going above and beyond to try to make sure the trajectory, trajectory of his career was not what it could have been.
0: Yeah, it so. could have been so very different.
1: Yeah, that's good. I like that. Good job, Brad.
0: Um, So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back, and we'll get into some more acting, casting, production, all of that shit. Yeah. Welcome, everyone, to the live wrestling spectacular in Los Angeles.
1: So far, the world's most boring wrestling podcast has been destroying the competition.
0: Isn't there anyone who can
1: save us from this travesty?
0: Wait, could it be?
1: It's Titan Fights, the perfect wrestling podcast.
0: Tights and Fights is here to save us from the monotony of boring wrestling podcasts with hilarious conversations.
1: Woke trips through the history of wrestling.
0: And joke about the finer points of people wearing spandex. What a match.
1: And the Tights and Fights podcast will be back every week. Thursdays on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Please, these hosts have families. Ties and Bites Podcast. Ties and Bites.
0: Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm here with Megan Griffiths. And we are talking about 12 Monkeys. Um, So we talked a little bit about Brad Pitt. Let us get into Bruce Willis. Let's. Um, we should note that this is the movie where Bruce Willis offered to shave his head, mm. also changing the trajectory of his career because yeah. of his hair. Has it come back from Two that Two men sense? who wanted to cut their hair, right? It's so <laughs> weird. Um, he'd come close to that look, you know, he was doing a buzz cut for Pulp Fiction and um, when Gilliam said he wanted to, above all a vulnerability in Willis's performance, Willis clean shaved his head. He was like, ah, yes. Um, it's almost like a return to this kind of like infantile state and, mm. you know, he's got kind of like a, a, a babyish quality about him. Um, and it's something that he performs in the movie as well. Um, he becomes very childlike and small in some scenes and um, especially towards the end where he's feeling very broken and fragile um, and really is taking care of Cole. Um, So all of this is extremely different from the persona Willis had before and honestly the performances that Willis did after with uh, the exception of M. Night Shyamalan films. Honestly, I, mm-hmm. honestly most of them are still him kind of doing the die hard thing tough guy yeah. Like, except for M. Night Shyamalan is the only one that, mm-hmm. that seems to want to get him to be an actor you know <laughs> yeah. it's interesting it's true um, so Gilliam said that he took the chance on Willis because of the improvised scene in Die Hard though uh, it's where he's talking to himself about his wife as he's pulling shards of glass from his feet yo pal you got a minute I'm here John Listen, man, I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. I want you to do something for me. Um, <clears throat> I want you to find my wife. Don't ask me how. By then, you'll know how. Uh, I want you to tell her something. I want you to tell her that... Um, I told her that it took me a while to figure out... Ah, what a jerk I've been. But, um... That... That when things started to pan out for her, I should have been more supportive.
1: I don't know if you've seen that recently, but it's just. i like... watched I Heard Every Christmas, so I yeah, I definitely have. Obviously, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't know that scene was improvised. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could. You can kind of tell, but I didn't. I didn't know it was all just coming out of him.
0: That's yeah. great. Which is, it's wonderful. And so Gilliam, when he was doing these interviews, he was just like, no, no, no. I don't think you guys understand Bruce Willis is an actual actor. And he mm-hmm. wants people to take him seriously as an actor. He can also deliver these wonderful quippy lines with, you know, like a, you know, self-deprecating attitude. But mm-hmm. he, you know, wants to be an actor. Well, it's <laughs> like,
1: I think I I certainly got to know him as David Addison from Moonlighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was so, I mean, he wasn't the diehard Bruce Willis at that point he you know no. he was he, he was a little bit of a schlubby detective um and he was so good in yeah. that role it's really still probably my favorite thing he's done
0: well and you know uh you build your career as kind of like a comic actor and it is sometimes difficult to to prove to people that that you can do other things mm-hmm. um but i i'm curious i like the idea that uh, Terry Gilliam saw him and Die Hard picked out that one scene and was just like, you know what? No, no, he can do it. Were there ever any times where you've watched a movie and you've seen a performance and you were like, oh, I want to work with that person someday? All the time, constantly. In fact, the
1: almost the entire cast of my film, The Off Hours, was me w- watching other independent films and pointing at people and being like, that person. I want to work with her or him. Um And I I still do it all the time. Like, I'm always looking for people that just kind of jump out of anything, like a movie or a television episode or something. And I'm writing down names all the time of people who have just kind of been doing something interesting Mm -hmm. that makes them their performance. Do you uh, keep like a notebook? Google Doc,
0: <laughs> yeah, of course, because it's 2018. Of course, yeah. I don't do anything like that. I'm just like, oh, a notebook, right? I like, know <laughs> it's funny. I get all these
1: notebooks from like film festivals. They always give you like little moleskin notebooks, and give them I just, to me. <laughs> I give them to my producer Lacey, because she's like a tactile, like, um, you know, she writes everything down in actual notebooks. But I just am so digital. If I lost my, <laughs> if if if
0: I got disconnected, I would just be lost. So. Gilliam makes a big deal about not living in Hollywood. Like in every interview that he does, he's always said like, quote, I work hard at trying to offer up a different perception of the world. That's why I stay in England. Anyone in the film industry is surrounded by so many people who seemingly all agree to accept a worldview at any one moment, any week. Films get made by people agreeing with that. My films fall through the cracks. Somehow we manage to get there. Agree or disagree agree kind of i mean
1: i think that uh i don't live in hollywood Obviously. either i live in seattle and that's definitely been a conscious choice over the years i moved to seattle thinking i would give it a shot and see how long i could make it work there and then i've been there for 18 years now um and i i always said like i'd move to la if if there was a if, if there was an opportunity not to go searching for opportunity and mm-hmm. um and my feelings about it that sort of are in the same category as Gilliam's are that um, the thing that bothers me about L.A. is that there's there's so many people in the industry that a lot of dyna- relationship dynamics become very transactional, and you get into all these situations where even casual hangs can become how can that person help me get to this this yes. thing that I want. Yes. And, and so if you're on the, the side of that where you're looking for something – it, it feels very desperate, and if you're on the side of it, who could grant something? It feels very uh, exhausting to keep having to sort of fend it off and 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 tr- say no to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it affects how people interact with each other to the point where um, often people who are on the side of it where they can offer something to people retreat behind gates and into big houses and don't and lose touch with with the sort of the real people of the world and then their films sort of lose touch with the real people of the world. So I'm mm-hmm. not in that category yet at all of, of people who are like need to retreat from the masses who are looking for something from me. But like this, that's what success feels like it means in Hollywood, where it's like you're you're if you're successful and people know you're successful, then all of a sudden you're like a commodity that they're looking to get something from. And you and I don't want to ever be have to step away from like humanity, Yeah.
0: So when Gilliam made 12 Monkeys, he hadn't seen the short film La Jetée. He Wait, what did you, he hadn't seen L'Ageté? No. Mm-mm. What? Uh, and this is, is the movie on which the script is based, which we had mentioned earlier in the show. Um, he said, quote, if I do something based on something else, I make it a principle not to read or see the original. I'll be intimidated by it or I'll feel an awesome sense of responsibility. So I avoid, I avoid that problem when I made Brazil. Uh, I'm sorry. When I made Brazil, I'd never read George Orwell's 1984.
1: Hmm. Weird, right? Very. I'm surprised because I just rewatched La Jetée last night. And I, I all I could think of was, wow, I could really easily see a, a filmmaker sitting and watching this and going, I could – like, it feels like a perfect movie to – and sometimes I think people think shouldn't be remade and it's just like – silly but Mm -hmm. in this case it's it's a little like because it's all in stills and it's in french and it's 30 minutes long which is a weird length it's a little inaccessible to a lot of people so i think the i could see a filmmaker sitting down and being like i could do something with this especially someone as visual as terry gilliam yes so i'm kind of amazed that he hadn't seen it and hopefully he has at this point but
0: yeah he watched it like a few years ago i think (laughs) (laughs) i read an interview He was like oh i'm gonna watch La finally and we'll see what happens. And, and there's like, a visual connective
1: tissue, too, yeah. in terms of like the people who are uh, standing, you know, in the underground world who are, you know, the scientists who are monitoring Bruce Willis. And then in the, you know, in La Jetée monitoring that character that kind of there's some like a costume choices and stuff that feel really connected. So,
0: yeah, I mean, obviously Janet and David Peoples had seen La before mm-hmm. they wrote the script. So I'm wondering how detailed they got in it. But at the yeah. same time, you know, we know Terry Gilliam is, you know, he he finds inspiration visually and from a lot of different places. So mm-hmm. it, does, it does make you wonder, you know, like, is this a script? Is this a story that kind of taps into our collective kind of Freudian nightmares you know like what like we all come up with the same kind of vision because this is like what makes us afraid or what makes us like fear technology or the future or Mm -hmm. you know those kinds of things yeah
1: and and like we i think there's that line that's interesting in told monkeys between am i ahead of everybody else or am i crazy
0: yeah
1: (laughs) you know and because there's that he he grapples with that at a certain point where he's like just kind of starts to accept that he's insane and it makes him happy because yeah. it's such a torture to know all this stuff that's going to happen yeah. that in, and have no one believe you.
0: He would rather not have the Cassandra syndrome, which is something that Dr. Raley talks about. That's her study of just like feeling like you need to warn the world because you you've seen that you've seen the future, mm-hmm. um, which is it's an interesting thing that that it's a very feminine um, uh, uh construction for story. And that's applied to a male who mm-hmm. has the Cassandra syndrome.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I I I don't know, I find it really interesting. And then like the sort of looping nature of the story, I think is, it, it it's a little, it's enough to drive you a little mad as an audience member, too, because you're, you kind of go to the end, and it's the beginning, you know? Yeah, and,
0: there's no happy resolution. And in fact, the studio was definitely fighting for him.
1: Yeah. To change it. In the
0: same way that the studio, Universal, when he did the 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 U.S. release of Brazil, they tried to get him to change the ending into a happier ending. And he was like, no. hmm
1: I mean, 12 Monkeys, I feel like, I find hope at the ending because the scientist from 2034 or whatever comes and sits next to the the dude who takes the germs out into the world or whatever starts the plague. Uh, and she sits next to him and I, I, I sense, oh, okay, there's going to be some... Control and containment of this big thing that takes out humanity. I saw it with such cynicism. Did you? It's I a, did. Let's talk
0: about it because I talked about it with my boyfriend too, and he was like, "Oh, that's how you read that." And like I didn't. I, I had such cynicism when I was just like, "Oh yeah, the powers that be who think they're trying to help the world are also, um, you know, shaking hands with the people who destroy it." And to me, that seemed kind of like a corporate. You know, like the idea of like oh wow, you know, yeah, that's a fully different people. version. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I don't, maybe I'm a negative person. I don't know. <laughs> that's what that's like what we were just
1: talking about in terms of like your what you're bringing to the table, exactly, and your own perceptions. And yeah, because I I saw it as like there was some uh, now I'm spacing exactly what it was, but there's some clue that gets added into the mix by Bruce Willis. Uh, at the eleventh hour mm-hmm. in the airport, and then yeah, because uh, someone
0: comes in. Yeah, we won't give too much away, but like someone comes in, and it seems like something is different. But yeah. I, I always felt I felt like that was a red
1: herring. Interesting. Well, I guess that's the great thing about a film like this is that you can you can take you could take away hope or cynicism depending on what you what you're looking for.
0: Exactly, <laughs> and and then I think it's similar with Sadie actually. That's true, it is. Yeah, Sadie. Okay, so we're going to get a little bit into Sadie, too. Um, because one of the things that I thought was really interesting, if we look at these um, uh, two movies side by side, if we look at Sadie and Twelve Monkeys, is the kind of um, architecture of like space and despair. Mm. And... Um, Terry Gilliam, he, let me see if I find it in my notes here, but he used all of these places um, for uh, 12 monkeys that were already there in Philadelphia, um, and some in Baltimore, too. Um, And so they were essentially like these old power structures and things that, that, oh, yeah, they were nuclear plants, factories, and power stations, and what he called, quote, cathedrals of technology progress. Interesting. And he also said... Quote, I've always had a problem with the belief that technology was going to solve all of our problems. So I'm drawn to shooting in those places, particularly for this film, which is about decay and about nostalgia. These great spaces were considered to be providing the solution to all of our problems. Yet now they're just wasted, lying there rotting. And that seemed to be very much what a lot of the film was about, about putting your faith in the wrong things. And I I was thinking about that when I watched Sadie, too, because, you know, in your film... You've got the whole thing set up at this Pacific Northwest trailer park, right? Mm -hmm. And it's in this makeshift community. And it actually evokes some of those same feelings that I get from 12 Monkeys because if I think about the history of a trailer or a mobile home, because that's immediately what my mind goes to, it was something people of more means would purchase for their road trips. So they would never have to be without the comforts of home. Mm. You know, like it was this big, shining new technology. Like you'd have a mobile home. Like, wow, isn't this amazing? And then, of course, years later, you have thousands of communities established across the country that need these former, quote, vacation trailers. Um, and that's that's something that I, you know, you can see where just the architecture of despair. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about finding these places and trying to kind of exploit what's already there in them. Yeah, I
1: definitely gravitate towards like things that are decaying a little bit and and a product of a different era and I love that idea of uh, it, you know it was it was built for this very hopeful reason and it's become this very hopeless mm-hmm. thing. You know, I think there's there's something really textured and complicated in all in that idea. Yeah. And, and the nostalgia like he was saying too, yeah. Yeah, and in this like what you're saying about how, you know, RVs and trailers were, you know, uh, and you know still are some in some degree like built to to be this extension of a family space. Mm-hmm. Um and now it's like Sadie's in the middle of this trailer park full of these and sort of just like struggling to grasp and keep hold of her family. Mm-hmm. Um and there's like this uh, desperation that surrounds her situation and the situation of a lot of the characters uh, that that is manifested or, or sort of represented by the way that the The trailers look and the junkyard that she's always walking through looks. And there's a lot of spaces like
0: that in the film. It's slightly ironic, you know, if you look at these mobile homes and you're like, ah, it's a mobile, supposed to be, or RV is supposed to be like freedom on the road. Exactly. That's not, it's the exact opposite. It's It's very trapped there. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And most of them are are like, you know, implanted into the ground at this point, um, but they still have these hitches on them, like you could take them somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: God, that's. Oh, have you ever lived in a in a trailer before?
1: Um, I well, I spent obviously spent a lot of time in them for this movie. Yeah, uh, but uh, I haven't lived in one. Um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up super wealthy, but we had a, a house, which is I'm grateful for. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I spending time in in this trailer park, which is interesting because we had a name for it in the script: Shady Plains Mobile Home Park. Mm-hmm. But uh, it didn't have a name, even. So, like, we put up a sign, and the folks who were living there were like, Oh, we have a name. And they were so happy to have a name marker, even though it was just for the film. And just so, a
0: community. Somebody took it.
1: Someone took <laughs> that it. sign. But, like, I, it, was, it was really interesting because there was all these people. And for the most part, they were just the most welcoming, uh, gracious mm-hmm. hosts to us, which is kind of amazing because we were shooting in the middle of the night and we were, you know, we were always up in their space. But, um, they really were uh you know they were just like anybody they're just people who are you know looking for a place that they can live and and afford and uh in washington and the seattle area where we were shooting mm-hmm. those prices are getting outrageous and you know it's not that far away of a possibility for anyone you know that to be kept yeah. to find themselves there so yeah
0: i know a lot of people a lot of friends of mine who live in rvs at this point mm-hmm. i mean i lived in a Trailer for a little while, like after you know college, you know around college things and late high school, just you know, yeah, trying to find something that you can afford, and it's <laughs> a it's a really interesting thing to see these communities that that pop up there, makeshift, and they're also very strong. Mm-hmm. And I like in your movie, you've got you know the idea that these two women, one played by Melanie Linsky, and the other one played by Danielle um, Brooks, Danielle Brooks. Um, Who have apparently known each other for for many years. And so they have a very kind of uh, like a tightness to their family. Yeah,
1: there's a community. There's a family, there's a community that is there that's supporting each other. And they've sort of taken, they're they're in this cul de sac of this trailer park. And they just, um, it's two families, but technically they're. Like sort of, we're all one family.
0: Yes. Um, so, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and we're talking a little bit about, um, you know, the portrayals of mental illness on film and also maybe a little bit about nudity. Okay. Hi, I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott. And we're the hosts of Everything's Everything's Coming Coming Up up Simpsons. Simpsons. Every episode, we cover a different episode of The Simpsons um, that is a favorite of our special guests. We've had guests that are showrunners and writers and voice actors like Nancy Cartwright... I got a D-minus, I passed! And we've also had people that are on the Max Fun Network already.
1: Homer wearing that golf outfit is I so funny.
0: It. And there's, when he gets super into golf, <laughs> he's wearing the golf hat in he's bed. Bad. We've had Weird Al Yankovic on the show.
1: I was just uh, struck by how sharp the writing is. I mean, yeah. that's no surprise because it's The Simpsons, but I mean, like, you, you can't say that about a lot, a, lot of, a lot of TV shows, particularly ones that at that point have been on the air for 14 years.
0: Find us on maximumfun.org, iTunes, or wherever you Get your podcasts. All right. Smell you later. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm joined here today by Megan Griffith. So we're talking about 12 monkeys. So portraying anyone who is mentally ill is going to have some challenges that come along with it. I think we used to be a lot more lackadaisical about that um, and probably are still to some extent, especially from what I've seen in a lot of films. Um, But in 1995, I don't know that There were many outlets for people to write think pieces that contemplated the ramifications (laughs) of mental illness depicted incorrectly on screen. Um, Anyway, a guy named Dr. Laszlo Giole, I think that's how you pronounce his name. We'll see. um, Who directs the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine's Bipolar Disorders Unit, came on set at Brad Pitt's request to help develop the character's mannerisms shaped from Giole's own patients. So the doctor was trying to portray a range of mental illnesses um, because he said, unlike the movies, uh, unlike most movies, uh, most people um, who are mentally ill do not rant and rave, but rather internalize their illness. Um, They're just regular people with an extra added dimension of mental difficulty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... It's it's an interesting thing that you know Brad Pitt had requested this. I'm glad that he, you know, maybe wanted to to get like an an insider's perspective on that. And then you also have you know the people in the hospital who who are they're not ranting, raving. Terry Gilliam does shoot things at like Dutch angles though, yeah. so it makes you feel like you're disoriented. But most of them are just quite normal people, and then Brad Pitt is the only one who's kind of like you know jittery and yeah and kind of off the wall. I I think I'm glad to hear that. And I feel like you can
1: feel it that there was that there was, you know, a a voice of authority on that subject in the room because I was watching it just this last week to revisit. And uh, I was glad to see that I felt like like I have some exposure in my life to people with bipolar disorder. And Mm -hmm. and I felt like he was getting a lot of things right. Um, Some of the performances, I think, you know, for. You know, entertainment value, but mm-hmm. like at the same time, it, it's it feels grounded to me in a real uh, sort of interpretation of behavior from that from from that results from that disorder. So I thought that was really good, and um and what he
0: was doing was great. So it's nice to know that he was sort of encouraging that himself. And that's uh, I mean, for your film Sadie, you have you do have people who have um uh, clearly some clinical depression and perhaps some PTSD going on <laughs> yeah and um, what what do you feel like is your responsibility as a director trying to get those things right you know do you try to avoid mental illness it's hard to avoid that in stories right now because you know very many populations in America like people they deal with invisible illness you yeah know? I mean I'm really interested in
1: in it in the way people, Minds work and mm-hmm. the way people arrive at choices, especially choices that are uh, feel like bad choices to me, I just want to understand how that happened. And um, my mom was a a social worker and she dealt with uh, she was a counselor for all these kids of abuse over the years and their parents. Yeah. Um, so she constantly was dealing with with people whose choices I didn't understand. These abusive parents, you know, and uh, she would talk about it sometimes at home. And so that I think there's a level of interest in intrigue into the sort of the dark side of humanity that I got from just having all that exposure to her work. Um, not that she would come home and just be dwell and constantly just bring the house down in terms of um, mm-hmm. this horrible thing happened today, but she would talk about it sometimes she needed an outlet. And so uh, I got really fascinated by that. And so in Sadie, it's interesting you bring up PTSD because I always think of it as a war movie. Um but the soldier's a young girl mm-hmm. um, and uh and so I wanted to make sure i was you know I, I wanted to talk about the impact of uh, a really violent culture on p- people who are now coming of age yeah. in that culture, so for everything from the more commonly discussed like violent films and and video games all the way up to. What I feel like we talk about not nearly enough, which is the fact that we set an example for children in the society where we're solving our problems as a nation with Mm -hmm. violence, you know, and all sorts of at all sorts of levels. And so um, I wanted to kind of make a a war movie that was set on the home front that that talked about uh, how the concept of war impacts kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was that was sort of the level of responsibility I felt was like depicting a military family. I don't come from a military family, although my mom's brothers, uh, many of them, served. And mm-hmm. I uh, I'm trying to depict the that without, you know, disrespecting that there are that people have good reason to join the military and patriotic reasons, and and that you know there's a lot of uh, good people who go off and fight these wars that we're waging as a country, but. Also talking about something that for me is very uh, important, which is that what is ultimately the result of that kind of violence and is there like the futility of war ultimately, Mm -hmm. like and how much an act of violence is ever going to change the course of uh, events for the better. Um, And so, yeah, so then, you know, bringing that back in, just trying to figure out how all that affects Sadie on a mental level. And how it affects her behavior and people have talked a lot at feedback screenings and in the press and everything since this, I've been making this film about the question of whether or not she's a sociopath um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I have my own opinions about that but it's been a conversation that came up uh, every almost every time I screened it especially when
0: I was like soliciting feedback from audiences mm-hmm. in the edit it's also something that's in our, our cultural consciousness right now you yeah know? Do we how do we, do we make sociopaths out of our children? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um and I like the idea that Gilliam's making a movie here that he didn't he you know, he does no interest in time travel whatsoever. So he wanted to make a movie that was just about like the corporate world, um, you know, the 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 bad sides of globalism mm-hmm. and and humanity and that kind of thing. But it just has to be through time travel. Mm-hmm. And then you're doing a war movie, but it's through like a personal drama.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It's about like a, uh, a mother-daughter story, you know, ultimately, and like all these interpersonal relationships. Because it's like she, you know, it was like theme first. It's like, I want to talk about this issue. Uh, I want to put a girl in the center of it because I've seen this story about Violence in young boys, I've seen stories about soldiers who are struggling from the effects of violence at war, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen something that talks about it with a young girl. Um, and so that all came first, and then all the characters and interdynamic, interpersonal dynamics grew from that.
0: Um, and that will you know, kind of segue into the next thing I want to talk about, because Bruce Willis goes nude in this film quite a bit. <laughs> Gilliam has a penchant for trying to get his actors naked, mostly women. Uh, But here it's just it's really just Bruce most of the time. Um, He's getting hosed off a lot in stalls. Um, And Gilliam said, quote, Bruce handles nudity amazingly well. I mean, when you do a nude scenes, everybody is always very nervous and trying to make you feel comfortable, which, of course, has the exact opposite result. But Bruce is just very natural about it. Off with the clothes and on with the work. So. Um, I think every actor and director tends to have some kind of story about uh, either taking off their clothes or getting someone else to take off their clothes (laughs) for a movie. And Sadie, you have your young actress, Sophie Mitri uh, Schloss, um, in a moment of desperation decides that she would like to undress, though not fully, um, in front of a man. And I imagine this would be a delicate scene to shoot. Absolutely. And, And so Gilliam comes from that school of, you know, like, you know, don't start shit won't be shit where there's just like i'm going to take away all of the anxiety about it by just not addressing it you Mm. know like this will be like yeah naked and it's fine and everything's going to be okay like he's part of that school where Mm -hmm. um and then you have other directors who are like no i would like to take you know some moments to talk about what that is what that means and and you know inform everyone on the set make people feel as comfortable as possible so i'm wondering you know what your what your approach to something like that is yeah i definitely don't think it can happen
1: without a discussion. I don't think that's respectful to the actors involved. And, you know, because everyone, you know, not everyone's Bruce Willis and is happy to walk around completely naked mm-hmm. on set. You know, there's most people have, um, you know, either body issues or just they don't feel like in the case of Sophia, um, she was for- barely 14 when we shot this movie. So it's not like she was. Excited about, you know, being nearly naked on set. Like, she she had modesty. She had, you know, uh, she felt very vulnerable. And, um, and I, you know, I just didn't—there's no way I, we could have done that scene without having—we had a lot of conversations about it. And we made sure that she felt good about how we were approaching it, that— her mom felt good. Who was on set too about how we were approaching it. That she felt good in the clothes, the, you know, the underwear that she's wearing. That mm-hmm. she felt, you know, con- it contained enough, you know, and that uh, and and John Gallagher Jr., who's opposite her in that scene, was so respectful. Um, often, when the camera wasn't pointed at him, he wouldn't even look at mm-hmm. her. When you know, so it was it was something that we all had conversations about and had in and, and it was. Delicate, for sure. But also, I don't, there's no, like, if we hadn't had those conversations, God, how unsafe would she have felt just being thrown into that situation?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, for a younger girl, or a young woman, or anyone, you know, like, that. I feel like you just need to do something else. I was a little bit disturbed when he was talking about directing Uma Thurman when she was 17, and getting her naked, and... um, uh, yeah, I,
1: I I just directed an episode of Animal Kingdom, and Ellen Barkin is the lead in that show, mm-hmm. and she's been uh, her, watching her Twitter thread. She's mentioned Tarek Gilliam a couple of times uh, as being sort of on the horizon for the Me Too movement, and so I'm that kind of comment on Uma Thurman. It feels like it might all. Factor into that. It
0: Might all factor in. And in fact, <laughs> uh, I would encourage people to watch that old Charlie Rose interview for uh, Twelve Monkeys. Charlie Rose, another creep. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see. We'll we'll see. But and he yeah. made a he made a, a lot of great movies. And this is what we're talking about. Well, yeah, it's interesting it's... because uh, so
1: I wrote a piece of last year about sort of what to do. I called it the pervert genius problem, um, which is yeah. like how to deal with. These people who've made work that you admire, but yeah. who have made choices that you despise. Yeah. And, um, and I, for me, it comes down to, you know, I don't think, uh, erasing them from the canon is the solution because it's, it would be a lot of work that would go away. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> like most of it? Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, yes, probably, honestly. But, um, but I do think that you do look at it differently. Like when I watch 12 Monkeys now, thinking about potential stuff with Terry Gilliam, you know, and looking at treatment of women in it and sort of stuff like that, it it sort of affects how I look at it. If I went back and watched the Cosby show at this point, I think it would affect mm-hmm. his, you know, it's a person's uh, point of view and their feelings about how women are treated or how men are treated or whatever are infused into their work and so you yeah, i think you go back to their work and you look at it in that light and you learn from like how a director's or a star or whatever how their um uh, their world view mm-hmm. uh, has been inserted into that particular film or TV show and then how then it has affected you in terms of your own development as a person who was a viewer of that. I think it's just to be have the awareness of it and to think about how you're involved and what it's done to us societally, I think, is the, yeah. the only way to go forward with it.
0: It's a really interesting thing, you know, bringing that up. there There is a, a, a part in 12 Monkeys where Madeline Stowe's character, Dr. Rayleigh, has been um, – kind of rescued by the police after being kidnapped by um, Cole and she's kind of begging for them to see that he's a really good person
1: I'll tell you something you locked out for a while we thought you were a body they found downstate mutilated he wouldn't do that this is a man here tell I want to be clear about this okay? this man and the other one were severely beating us James Cole
0: didn't start it. In fact, he saved me.
1: <laughs> Funny thing, doctor. Maybe you can help explain it to me, being a psychiatrist and all. Why is it that kidnapped victims almost always try to tell us about the guys that grabbed them? And they try to make us understand how kind these bastards really were.
0: And that line where she was when she's trying to explain it to them, I was just like, yeah, why is that <laughs> <laughs> why why is there that
1: Stockholm syndrome there, and how come we all have it as a society <laughs>
0: <laughs> that a, yeah, that's a it's a question for the ages. Maybe our listeners can weigh in on that. Why do we have the Stockholm syndrome? but I thought that that was a really kind of astute way also in the script to kind of explain Dr. Raley's um you know impetus for. Attempting to get with James Cole and fall yeah. in love with him
1: because it's actually a real leap.
0: I mean the
1: it, it, the person who was on set for Brad Pitt for the bipolar disorder stuff, I don't think probably stuck around for the the psychologist or psychiatrist falling for her patient no. part of it because I think that Mm-mm. is uh, is a real uh, minefield.
0: <laughs> so no, that's that's a that's a real interesting one. It's uh... a. <laughs> I still think that Janet David and David Peoples did a really great job with the script, yeah, making something that could be very complicated into something that is uh, just richly complex. You know? I
1: agree. I agree. I also think you know on that sort of subject about how those characters interact I feel like there's a version of it probably not one that studios would gravitate towards as much that doesn't have them romantically linked but mm-hmm. has her still come to f- understand that that you know his Cassandra syndrome is is maybe b- based in something legitimate um and so I could see her coming around to his point of view without actually falling in love with him um and I think there's a version of the movie that would be that but Oh, I would
0: like to see that version. I know, me too.
1: <laughs> well,
0: uh, I want to thank you so much for coming and joining us today to talk about your work and about twelve monkeys. And thank you. um Megan, can you tell us uh where and when people can see Sadie? Absolutely. So um it comes out on October twelfth in New York, LA and Olympia,
1: Washington, and then it will continue rolling out to cities uh after that theatrically and um Later this year on iTunes and then in February on Amazon.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, you so much.
1: Sorry, I was just gonna say also you can people can uh, find screenings near them and follow the film at Sadiefilm.com and at Sadie Film on all the social media and we're blogging about our efforts in creative distribution and that you can also follow on our website. Dude, technology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. Thank
0: you. And thank you, wonderful listeners, for taking your time to listen to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. Uh, here's one Shang Zhang Shang. I like that name a lot. I love this podcast. It introduces me to female filmmakers and their projects and previous works and their inspirations. Plus, I get to hear new funny things about some of my favorite genre films. April has great chemistry with each of her guests, which ensures no weird pauses or uhs or ums, which seems to run rampant in other podcasts. Highly recommend if you love and support women. And then Nico Banana 24 says, love the discussions, love the movies, and love learning about filmmakers I didn't know about. So, if you guys want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org.